This is an encore presentation of Radio Stockdale. As we look at new technologies coming to the fore, not only in warfighting, but policy and business, it's appropriate to look at how these technologies disrupt the status quo. Here's Disruptive Technologies with Dr. Tony Paff. This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Radio Stockdale. I'm your host, Michael Sears, from the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. My guest today is Dr. Tony Pfaff. He's currently the Research Professor for Strategy, the Military Profession, and Ethics at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He is a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, a retired Army colonel and foreign affairs officer for the Middle East and North Africa, Dr. Pfaff recently served as director for Iraq on the National Security Council staff. Dr. Pfaff has a bachelor's degree in philosophy and economics from Washington Lee University, a master's degree from my old school, Stanford University, and a doctorate from Georgetown University. Welcome, Dr. Tony Pfaff. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. I'm going to jump right into it with current events by one of my favorite uh, politicians, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. You mentioned that Prime Minister Johnson says that scientific advance is punished by the gods. Why do you mention that? No, that's a good question. Uh, He gave a talk to the United Nations General Assembly back in 2019, where the theme of his talk was really disruptive technologies and why we should be concerned. And while the talk was, you know, you can Google it, it's on YouTube, it got kind of weird at some points when he started worrying about uh, terrifying limbless chickens. Uh, <laughs> but he made the point. That was his theme. Any scientific advance is punished by the gods. And I think that's actually a, it's, a, it's an interesting point because often, particularly with what we're going to call and talk about as disruptive technologies, they often cause more problems than they solve, and we get in trouble when we don't pay attention to managing those back-end problems. So I always like to start out this with that quote. But what do you mean by disruptive technologies? Yeah, so not every technology is obviously disruptive. In the article I talk about, like stealth technology, it just it, it just sort of complements or uh, features of uh, aircraft, for example, that already exist. It just amplifies it. It doesn't really change how the aircraft fights. With disruptive technologies, the other thing to understand is they don't have to be that advanced, but what they have is they have an attribute that members of a subset of a particular market or community find useful in ways that were not anticipated necessarily by the um, original developers. The, The sort of the canonical example is hard drives. And a guy named Clayton Christensen did a study uh, where he, he figured out that in the 80s, hard drives were big. Uh, they were fast, but they were big and expensive. Uh, but they had a lot of memory. Somebody figured out how to make a smaller one that wasn't as big, didn't have as much memory, wasn't as fast, but it was portable. It's the introduction of that new attribute, portability, that people found useful. Eventually, and that gave us portable computers and personal computers. Eventually, they crowded out the market for the really big, slower, the really big hard drives that were expensive, but faster. Pretty soon, if you weren't making the little portable hard drives, uh, despite the fact, you know, per per byte, they cost more. If you weren't making them, you weren't making any. And the big manufacturers either got, had to be satisfied a very small corner of the market or went out of business. So I got satisfied by buying a slower, less productive, smaller size hard drive but I could buy one and I can attach it to my PC. Let me ask you this then. Let's put it in the naval context. 
is a battleship or an airplane or a submarine disruptive technologies? I, I think in their day, they all were. Uh, just kind of going back to your original point, the point is you couldn't do it until somebody, and until it became efficient for the market to produce those. And that was because of that attribute. And the disruptive piece was what it did to the rest of the market. But yeah, submarines, for example, changed a, a lot of the way uh, navies fight. And again, it was the attribute, stealth in this case, Navies figured out that, well, it allowed them to get beyond uh, sort of uh, the uh, defenses of a modern Navy and attack the soft underbellies. And, a lot of, and this is what happened in World War I. The German Navy used it, that attribute, in order to go after merchant ships, and, and a, which allowed that, which the Brits were using to transport military supplies uh, in some cases. And they, were not, they, they were able to go after merchant ships in a way they wouldn't have been able to with their larger, with the uh, more conventional Navy. And result, there was a, you know, it was a part of the war was unlimited submarine warfare, which we later, we later tried to outlaw, but were unsuccessful in following World War I, rather. So does that make it disruptive? And what I mean by that, your, your point about outlawing it, didn't the Admiralty try to, I guess the word is outlaw, um, submarine? In the 1920s, they had the, the British in particular uh, wanted to outlaw submarine warfare altogether. They could not get that agreement. They, what they ended up doing was changing the rules uh, regarding how submarines could engage uh, and had basically changed the norms to make room for the, the use of technology, of that technology. And essentially still ruled out attacking, you know, civilian merchant ships directly. But there was a burden placed on opponents' navy to protect those ships. So, so I hear you talking norms. Let's jump to that real quick. How do you measure disruption uh, 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 another good question. And that's kind of part of it, right? Because it's, it's one thing to say that, um, that a technology is disruptive, but who cares, right? I mean, so, so small hard drives displace big hard drives, you know, we, we got the personal computer market. That's all good, right? What's, what's the harm? And I think, so you have to apply a different set of criteria, another set of criteria in order to decide if there are sort of ethical risks associated with this. And in those, in that case, I argue for, Four basic categories are things that you have to look at. One is moral autonomy. How does this technology impact the ability for humans to make decisions uh, and to take responsibility? Uh, I look at well-being. You know, how does this affect human health, uh, both mental and physical? Uh, I look at issues of justice. And here, in some sense, a lot of these you know, overlap on what we would call issues of justice. But because these are military technologies, uh, I'm looking at, you know, how does that impact the norms that are associated with just war theory? For example, technologies that allow us to reduce risk might make us, even if they're more precise, might make us more uh, likely to, you know, uh, to, to use force, in which case could escalate. And thus we have a problem for a proliferation of conflict, even though the intent of the technology was to, you know, limit uh, conflict. And then uh, social disruption. A lot of these technologies uh, impact not only the way the military interacts with its civil authorities, as well as the society that it serves, it can, imp it can impact the society itself. For instance, uh, there's a lot of uh, literature on and concern about uh, genetic enhancements for military purposes. So let's say that I can cognitively enhance someone so they think better, faster, stronger. Okay, at some point they're going to get out of the military. What do we do with them? How does that impact the civilian workforce? They now have an advantage civilians don't. We also have the other kind of concern where uh, the use of enhancements or, so, uh, or other kinds of treatments could have an uh, unanticipated negative effect down the road. And you have veterans who are suffering from those side effects. You know, what do we do about that? Uh, so... 
uh, and how does that and, and who takes responsibility? So that's another thing that you have to think about when you are when you're trying to measure. Okay, do I is this worth the risk? And and when is that measurement taken? Tony, is the is the measurement taken when when we're drawing up the blueprints or the specification for that technology? Or I mean, how would you know? Yeah, no, good question. The uh, uh, a you have to be thinking about this all the way through. A lot of times we want to develop the thing and then we worry about whether it's ethical or not on the back end. In fact, we really aren't thinking about all the possible uses. We might be developing that technology with one particular use and just understanding that you know maybe there'll be some others down the road. Kind of got to do all that up front. And I think there's uh, at least three things you have to consider when you're um, when you're developing these things. Uh, the first is what I call moral effect, and a lot of that is actually in you know already kind of in international law, which says prohibits the development of weapons uh, that intentionally cause unnecessary suffering, for example, or indiscriminate, or cause widespread uh, damage to the to the environment, or modify the environment in a way that you know leads to some pr- otherwise prohibited harm. Uh, so, so, so we first going to worry, is the effect, you know, can it be used morally, first of all, uh, you know, in accordance with our norms for fighting? Uh, the second thing is uh, necessity. And here, the, uh, my, uh, the concern is, I mean, why are we doing this in the first place? And I think this is one thing you have to kind of do incorporate into the moral analysis. Um, you know, if we can walk away from something this risky, maybe we should. But the problem is you often can't, right? You, you have adversaries developing the same kind of technology. So you develop it in order to, uh, you know, maintain your advantage. But if all you're doing is maintaining an advantage, then I think you have a problem. I, I love Einstein's uh, quote, you know, after the development of the nuclear bomb where he said, I mean, the atomic bomb, where he said his only regret basically was getting involved with that development. But we had to worry about the Germans who might get that as well. And the idea, while he correctly understood the ethical risks associated with atomic weapons, uh, he noted that that still taking that risk was worth it relative to allowing you know Nazi Germany to have that technology instead, and with that likely win the war. So I would add that you, it's not just about gaining advantage; you have to at least be able to say that um, you know, you're avo- you're avoiding a disadvantage, and then avoiding that disadvantage, you know, you, and, and if you fail to avoid that disadvantage, you risk a unjust outcome like Nazi Germany winning or. Some, uh, something else like that. Uh, the last one is proportionality, which is kind of a standard criteria in a lot of uh, particularly military uh, uh, ethic, ethical discussions. Uh, although I would, I would point out that it's a lot harder to apply than it sounds. I mean, it's very simple in, in description. Do more, do more good than harm. However, how do you know? <laughs> particularly with something that's disruptive and you can't really anticipate the uh, effects down the road. You don't really know. And that's a problem for proportionality in general. However, the good news is, I think, you don't really have to um, establish that something is proportional in order to establish that it's disproportional. For example, if you know, if, you're, if your spouse cooks you a meal that you don't like and you throw it on the floor and you throw di- break the dishes and you yell and scream, that's disproportionate. Uh, I don't know what the proportionate response would be, but I can tell you that's disproportionate. And you can use that kind of standard here as well, where um, and when you look at the kinds of, and, you know, it requires to look at the kinds of alternatives that you have and ruling out the ones that just seem excessive. And an example I, uh, I, I, I use in the article 
is um, it, you know, cyber, which I would also argue is a disruptive technology. The Iranians used it to shut down a power plant in Istanbul, uh, put 41 million Turks out of, uh, off, out of power for, I think, like three days over a response to over, a, uh, you know, over their support for uh, Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. I'd argue that's a, um, uh, that would be a disproportional response. Now, what would be a proportional response for the Turks? A little harder to tell. Uh, we want to take a step back and ask, you know, is the use of that technology then inherently disproportionate? And the answer would be, uh, and, and that's where we would have to go with cyber. And the answer would probably not. There's probably something they could do. Targeting of a government site uh, that didn't affect as many non-civilians you know, would be a way of then thinking through the proportionality issue in terms of not only what capability to develop, but also how you use it. Dr. Tony Paff, that was a scenario that could very easily escalate very quickly out of control. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on Radio Stockdale. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Radio Stockdale, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts. 